0: You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into?
1: It's no place for kids.
2: A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You
0: you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Girls
1: don't love their father. Since when? Since I got to be 16? Stop that! I love you, Jim. I really mean it. It's ticklish business, any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's ticklish business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Kimberly Pierce. And this week, we are joined by not one, but two. Special guests talking about all things Natalie Wood in honor of her birthday. We are joined by Maureen Lee Lanker and Oriana Nudo. Oriana, Maureen, how are you? We're good. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, so excited to be here. You guys are embarking on a project that I love with your podcast that is looking at every single Natalie Wood movie. Can you talk a little bit about starting your show, why you picked Natalie
3: Wood? Oriana and I had been wanting to do a podcast together for forever. We met in college. We met at USC working at the Warner Brothers archives. So old movie lovers was a foundational part of our friendship for about the last, I don't know, Oriana, what do you think? Four or five years that we've been talking about this idea? Yeah. Yeah. We've said we're both completists. We love to do things not by halves. And we had said like, oh, it'd be so cool to go through Star's entire filmographies from start to finish. And then we're like, oh, that'd be a really good idea for a podcast. We Talked about it for a while and we just never had time and never got our act together. And then the pandemic happened, which was a great time to start a podcast because we didn't have a whole lot else to do. The basic concept of the podcast, watching a Star's entire filmography from start to finish had been around for a while. And then we picked Natalie Wood for a couple of different reasons. Why don't you explain a little bit of that, Oriana? When we were trying to come up with someone, it's funny because there are so many people you think of.
0: Someone like Harry Grant, but he made a lot of movies. You have to figure out what an amount that's actually manageable and people might not think is too daunting. She did 47 feature films. It's still a lot, but that's a pretty good number. When we were trying to figure out someone to do... There's this thing I do on Instagram. It's silly. I basically take a picture of two famous people. It'll be a picture of like Betty Grable and Marilyn Monroe. And I'll say Betty Grable and friend. And it's very clear who the friend is. But I've been doing this for a year, year and a half now. And I noticed that Natalie Wood, whenever you use her, she gets lots and lots of extra likes more so than other people. She's also just someone we both have always liked her. She's an incredible actress. And She is not someone who anyone dislikes. Who doesn't want to watch her movies and talk about her?
3: And then once we started batting around, oh, she seems popular. We both love her. More reasons became evident. The two major ones being she's a rare star who moved from child star to teen star to leading lady. And by virtue of that fact, really moved from the height of the studio system through its dissolution into new Hollywood, which would allow us to cover a really interesting period of time and talk about a lot of different facets of Hollywood history and how filmmaking evolved and her role within that. Also, we found that whenever people talk about her or look at her work, it's always really overshadowed by the tragic nature of her death. And that tends to be the first thing people think of when they think of her. And we just thought That was really unfortunate because she's an incredible actress. She left behind this really wonderful body of work. We wish that people would talk about that more. So we decided she'd be a great person to establish the ethos of this podcast in that really looking at a person's body of work from start to finish would allow you to examine them as an actor and a persona and perhaps divorce them from the things that have overwhelmed their image, whether it be one particular film or something tragic that happened in their personal life. And so it was really important to us that we go into this project and not have that like hindsight is twenty twenty point of view and not be constantly bringing that into the conversation and looking through that lens. So that's something we've also really tried to really stick to throughout. It's so fun,
1: your show, which I realized I did not give the name at at the beginning, Hollywoodography. It's amazing to listen to you two watching some of the more obscure Natalie films I know you guys are both big fans of Driftwood, one of the smaller films that she did. I think people tend to forget that Natalie Wood really did a lot of things where she was just the girl or a minor Mm -hmm. presence in these movies. There's this misconception that Natalie Wood was always a big star and that she didn't do stuff to just fill a contract, even though of course she did because
3: they all did. Yeah, absolutely. There were probably more stinkers (laughs) than we expected. Going in, Oriana had seen a lot more of the entire body of work going in than I had. But also there were, especially in that child star phase, there were a lot of movies that were great underseen movies that she just played a kid in or had a a minor role in that are really wonderful in their own right, but they're just B pictures or things that have not stood the test of time in the same way some of the really big marquee titles have, but we're still really delightful discoveries like Driftwood.
0: She's a little girl in Miracle on 34th Street. And if she had made nothing else the rest of her career, that's what she'd be known for. A lot of people think she basically went from Miracle and then did Rebel Without a Cause and don't really examine the films in between, which again, some are really not so great, but a lot, it's really fun watching her grow up on screen because she was an incredible actress from the get-go and that lasts her entire career. And she was incredibly talented. So even some of her movies that aren't as necessarily fun to watch, or maybe aren't holding up as well as they probably did when they came out. She's still great to watch because you know, you're going to get a good performance in watching it the way we did from start to finish. I really helped put us in the mindset of how people would have viewed her during those times because they too would have watched her grow up and turn into this very nice young lady and then take these adult parts and the difference between a West side story and a sex in the single girl, things that were not like shocking, but you'd be like, Ooh, this would have been racy for the times you get it. Cause you watched her as that little girl. So that was really helpful in putting everything into perspective for us. That was amazing how she has the capability to be the
2: best part of, I wouldn't even necessarily say a bad film, but an unmemorable film. I was just watching for the first time Bombers B-52. I've been on a run of just generic military movies, and I can't even remember who I was watching that for.
1: That's a very Kim statement (laughs) (laughs) And I was
2: watching this and I'm like, I won't remember this in six weeks, but God, she was good in this.
3: Yeah, that's a great example of how if that movie was solely about her character, it would be such a better movie. Mm-hmm. But all of the military propaganda for the bomber B-52 and how it functions gets in the way. But her parts of the film and her family dynamics with Carl Malden and Marsha Hunt are really phenomenal. And that's a great example of that period between Rebel and when her career really takes off in the early 60s. of the really bad studio film she was getting stuck in that she was elevating and making the best of in these parts.
0: <laughs> because she was never into any particular school of acting. She was around the method acting crowd, but that wasn't necessarily her thing. She was more instinctual. How would this person feel? How would I feel if I were doing this? And she really acted based off her gut and instinct. Watching her in Bomber's B-52, she is so subtle and she's really good at playing regular everyday people, which it's so hard sometimes watching that when someone as beautiful as she is, you're like, you would never be in this scenario. But her acting really grounds her and grounds the film a lot. Like there's that scene where her dad's waiting for her to come home and he's all nervous and it's up till four in the morning and she's just sitting out on their porch talking to Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., and you expect something like super dramatic and it just doesn't happen because that's not really Mm. her style. And I think that also helped her acting stand up so well today is she feels so natural. She fit into every decade that she acted in. You could still throw her in a movie today and her acting would not
1: age. It's amazing that we're talking about two movies that are not insanely far apart in years, but really did evoke two different distinct eras, both for Natalie Wood and filmmaking in general. But before we get to the movie, we'd love to remind you about the Ticklish Business Patreon, which can be found at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Not only does your support help keep the lights on our all-female produced podcast, but you also get regular gifts, including DVDs, books, and Blu-rays, as well as exclusive interviews and bonus podcasts you can't hear anywhere else. You can visit patreon.com slash to learn more. We're looking at two movies that aren't necessarily that far apart in terms of time period, but did represent two very distinct eras in both Natalie Wood's film career as well as filmmaking in general. We're looking at 1955's Rebel Without a Cause and 1969's Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, two movies that have absolutely nothing in common in terms of genre, They're both location based. They're both set in Los Angeles and they both star Natalie Wood, but they represent the teen Natalie Wood and the adult Natalie Wood. I'll get plot out of the way so we can just start jumping into both. Rebel Without a Cause directed by Nicholas Ray. tells the story of a young man named Jim Stark played by James Dean, who is new to a school in Los Angeles. He has a troubled past and he's trying to just live his life but he makes friends and enemies along the way. He bands together with a sensitive boy named Plato, played by Salminio, and a wayward teen girl named Judy, played by Natalie Wood. Bob and Carolyn and Ted Nallis, Natalie Wood is an adult, a mother, a wife. Her and her husband, played by Robert Culp, decide to go to a therapy session. It's essentially Esalen, if you know that, from the late 60s, early 70s and decide they want to strengthen their relationship and not engage in conflict as much. But their two best friends, Ted and Alice, played by Elliot Gould and Diane Cannon, respectively, think they are incredibly weird, especially once the two start engaging in extramarital affairs. It all culminates with an encounter that is prominently featured on the box cover, depending on which copy of the DVD or Blu-ray you have. I'm sure we've all seen both of these films several times. I don't know how many times people watch Bob and Carol and Ted Nallis. I've seen it three times now. I certainly prefer one over the other. Rebel Without a Cause is a classic. Bob and Carol and Ted Nallis is a fascinating film, but it's very 1969. For you two, Oriana and Maureen, how do you see these two films, both in a bubble of just Natalie Wood in these two movies, but as the grander implications of her career?
3: First of all, that's really funny because I don't want to speak for Oriana, but I think we would both say that we prefer Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice to all. <laughs> I love that. That is why not all classic film fans are made the same. <laughs> but they really do represent two fence posts in her career, whereas Rebel is definitively this move from child star into more adult teen actress. She had been stuck For a long time in child roles, basically, and was at the age of 12, 13, 14, still playing eight and nine year olds and pigtails and feeling really frustrated and infantilized by that, understandably. So Rebel was a huge opportunity for her to strike out and prove that she was capable of something different. And she absolutely did. And she got the Oscar nomination for it. And we can get into all of that as we go on. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is really the culmination of her greatest decade of her career. The 60s is her sweet spot. It's where she does her most impressive and longest, most consistent stream of good work. It comes at the end of a multi-year break for her. She bought herself out of her Warner Brothers contract in 66 and then just took a bunch of time off because she really had never had an extended break from the time she started acting as a very small child. In a lot of ways, it's a departure as well. She had been playing these early 60s roles, models of femininity, and really getting into some feminist themes and certainly exploring sexuality and things like that in her work, but in a much more veiled form. As you said, Kristen, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is very much a product of the 60s, very into exploring free love and aspects of the counterculture. It's really a testament to her skill that she can be in something that is so 50s, like the youth culture of Rebel, and excel in that. And then something that is so 60s and feels so natural and in place in both of them. Also, she's the end
0: line of people who have personas the way we identify with them in the 30s and 40s. The first time I saw Bob and Carol and Tad and Alice, which is maybe like five, six years ago, I was just so blown away that this was the little girl in Miracle on 34th Street, and then the teenager in Rebel Without a Cause, and then even the really tragic teenager in Splendor in the Grass. I just could not believe this was the same person and that she was so believable and that she was so good. And her acting had matured so much. Bob and Carol and something like Splendor, her acting's incredible in both of them, but they just feel like two really, really, really different people. And she is the least 60s feeling in the film. Again, she's really the one that grounds it back down. You could plot that character in the seventies. You could plop her in the eighties. Her character would still work. But besides that, the films are also so important because Rebel really solidifies her place at Warner Brothers as the queen of the Warner Brothers lot. That led her into a lot of roles right after where they didn't really know what to do with her. I don't think they were necessarily expecting her to be as good as she was in Rebel. And they're kind of like, oh no, like, I don't know. Let's throw her in this. Let's throw her in this. So by the time she does Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, she gets a back end of the deal and is incredibly well paid for the film, which did not happen too often in her career. So it's also a great departure from the studio system in that sense, which was something she was a little weary of leaving. She had turned down the role of Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde. She'd been looking for a really great 60s project and something very, not necessarily counterculture, but very different from what she'd been doing. But I think it took a little bit to take that leap. And then once those movies in 67 came out, that really paved the way for her to do this. So it was also just important on that level of her career as well.
3: It's also really interesting. I love that you both wanted to talk about these two films in that they're both extremely important culturally. Rebel's probably slightly better known, but They really cement and start conversations for Rebel. Of course, it's a classic because it, along with a handful of other films around the same period, introduced the idea of teen culture and teen angst. That wasn't really something that existed culturally or adults thought about outside of maybe complaining about juvenile delinquents or something. And this really got into the psychology of it and how isolated teenagers felt and how different they were culturally from their older parents. So she's a part of that. But then she's also part of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which is, even though, as you said, not very much time in between, less than 15 years, is looking at this radically different way of thinking and culture and thinking about relationships as being more open and examining changing ideas of intimacy and love. And how do we quantify sex versus romantic love how does all that function within a relationship, things that people weren't talking about in those frank of terms prior to the end of the 60s. And you bring up such a good point with
1: both movies in the sense of how each of them looks at relationships and domesticity Mm -hmm. and marriage in vastly different eras that feel like there's a gulf between them. The 1950s, is so synonymous with Donna Reed and subjugating women and all of those things that we now know are far more nuanced and complex, but still very limiting. And Natalie Wood was part of it in limited in her own way in terms of wanting to be taken seriously as a performer, wanting to be a woman. She was in a very controlling relationship with her mother at the time and felt that playing Judy was going to be a game changer for her as an artist. Most people know the story of how she was already playing Judy in terms of going out at night, sneaking around, and having these illicit relationships. The hardest part for me watching Rebel Without a Cause at any point in time is knowing that she was dating Nicholas Ray at the time of filming, and he was vastly
3: older. She was, what, 16 at the time? 16 was the age of consent then. So it's a little bit different than we think about it in today's terms, but still wildly inappropriate. Exactly. (laughs) And what's interesting is she was very
0: much in search of some sort of father type figure in some way or another, because she also is very, very complicated situation, but was dating her co-star Raymond Burr also after she did Uh, a cry in the night. So her men was not
1: something that was foreign which I will say, if anybody wants my take on A Cry in the Night, it has my favorite movie line of all movie lines, where they're out at the lover's lane, and one of the cops says they're probably hopped up on the goofballs. It's hilarious. Completely out of context. It makes no sense, but it's genius. A Cry in the <laughs> Night needs its own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you look at the 1950s as this time of domesticity. Nicholas Ray comes out with this movie about, quote-unquote, juvenile delinquents. But really, when you get to the part of this movie. It's not that these characters are necessarily delinquent. What do they want? They want the domesticity. They want the happy home that all these adults are striving for when they go up to the mansion in the third act. James Dean's Jim and Natalie Judy are pretending to be buying the house. It's the concept of having a home, being married, having children, They're holding on deeper to the American dream and that concept of the 1950s than their own parents are, which is just really interestingly ironic. I love that little twist on it. It's like what every generation goes through.
0: If you are someone who decides you want to have kids, I can literally count on my hand one or two friends who were like, I want to do things exactly the way my parents did. My parents were great and perfect. And that's how I want to raise my children. And I think that's the whole point is, when therapy shows up in films, you're finally learning how to psychoanalyze things and they see what makes them unhappy and what for the first time children are really critiquing their parents and their parenting style. All Judy wants from her father is she wants him to hug her. It's like she woke up one day, probably woke up one day, had boobs and her dad's like, all right, that's it. You're done. And she's still missing that father figure. And Jim doesn't believe that his father father is a real father. He thinks his mom's castrating him. I feel like when they're playing house, it's very much like, this is what we do, but we do it different. And we would treat our kids differently. And these are all the things we wouldn't do that have been done to us. So we want to make it better. So I think that's also an interesting take on it. They're playing house, but they really want it to be different than how it
1: is for them. If you extrapolate that to the relationship in Bob and Carol and Ted now is, it's really interesting. I watched this movie for the first time, probably when I was in my late teens, early 20s. You watch it and you're like, oh, okay, key parties, wife swapping. It's the 60s, 70s. That's all that you expect. But watching it this time around as who's who older at this point in their 30s, I was really struck by the questions of, is this marriage necessarily good? is their relationship better than it was in the 1950s where you had clearly delineated roles and watching Jim realize that his parents, his mother is domineering and his dad is a bit more sensitive. Natalie Wood and and Robert Culp's characters, Bob and Carol, they talk about their issues. They talk about them so much, but then when they have these arguments, it becomes almost comical at how they haven't really dealt with a lot of, the issues that they have in terms of approaching their infidelity and what that means to their relationship. She's not angry that he's cheated, but she doesn't really feel anything. So what does that mean? Whereas you have the other couples who are saying that they definitely have a strong feelings for how they feel about this other couple's relationship, and it's this constant questioning with the script of what is right, and it never really answers that, which I appreciated. Bob and Carol. And again, when they go up to do
0: this therapy thing, it's for a documentary film he's making. We think we want to have a therapy session, which allegedly this was based off of something Paul Mazursky and his wife did. They were doing research. And then he said they were in this therapy session and they were the only couple. And it suddenly turned on him. His wife was crying and everyone was yelling at him. And that makes it so much more enjoyable when you watch the movie because it really does suddenly just flip on the husband. And he's like, oh my God, what's happening? But what I love so much about it is they're so open about the infidelity. It happens. He tells her and what struck me the most, because I saw this in my late twenties for the first time, but what I loved so much about it is when he tells her and he's expecting her to be upset and then he's mad. She's not upset. Her whole thing was okay, but how do I feel versus how does society tell me I should feel about my husband cheating on me? And I think that's such an important distinction because she actually thinks about it. And she's like, you know what? Like she says, is this going to happen again? okay. It was just a one-time thing. It was just for the sex. Okay. Then it gets complicated because she decides to do the same thing and how her husband reacts is so different. He's very angry. When you compare all of this to Ted and Alice who have that more conventional domestic lifestyle, they're the ones hiding things and they're the ones hiding their feelings. And Alice is going to therapy, but who knows if any of that gets along to her husband or if she's working on anything. And then her husband is the one cheating on her and then just tells it in front of everyone, which would have been so embarrassing for Alice versus the couple who's doing it the unconventional way, but they're still so respectful of each other. And they're treating this very carefully because it's like untreaded waters. And then the domestic couples, really the one where that movie ends. And I'm just like, I don't think Ted and Alice are going to make it. I don't think Alice is going to be okay with this. Who knows how long Bob and Carol, but at best they'd have an amicable divorce if that's where it goes. But I don't see Ted and Alice having any
3: sort of real happy ending in this movie. It really presents two different pictures of how intimacy and communication can function in a relationship because Bob and Carol, they do have this very unconventional approach and they do start to unpick all of these things with both of them having extramarital affairs and realize that they're capable of holding the intimacy of their relationship separate from the physical of sex with other people. Part of that is being open with each other about it and saying, I did it because I wanted to. That's one of Carol's lines. She has no other reasoning. There's not anything deeper there, actually. It is literally, I had this urge and I satisfied it. And that's why we're okay because the deeper stuff is with us, but it's not with this other thing that I'm doing. Whereas Ted and Alice, it's all mired together and they're unable to unpick it because they're not able to talk about it with each other. All they're able to do is have these vague arguments or cast judgments on their friends when really, I think part of that judgment is Alice's own anxiety about what if that happened to her and Ted's own desire, wishing that his relationship was like that. And neither of them being able to discuss that with each other. It gives this really interesting portrait of One couple who's in traditional domesticity and one who's not, but the one who's in the less traditional relationship, actually having healthier lines of communication because they're able to blow up what people might think about fidelity and intimacy versus the couple clinging to these more old fashioned ideals and what people might think. Ted and Alice are the ones who
0: instigate the potential orgy at the end. They're the ones who they're drinking. Alice finds out her husband cheated on her and she's like, well, fine, let's go do it. I'm going to do this too. It's such a revenge thing that she wants. And they're so upset that they don't talk about things, but she thought her marriage was okay. And then this is what's happening. Bob and Carol are the ones who at first are like, no, we're not crossing this line. It's interesting that even though they're willing to have affairs, like I said, they're keeping it very as impersonal as you can. They both wanted to do something, they do it. And it's not like you he- hear the characters talk about wanting to do, You who knows if they're ever going to do that again. Maybe it was just one and done for both of them. But Ted and Alice really have these huge issues and are the ones that pull them into this funny, but kind of toxic for their friendship situation.
2: You two are actually blowing my mind with your analysis of this. Cause as I was watching the end of it, I watched this when I was too young. I was probably in my teens or early twenties when I watched it, didn't get it. Wasn't sure if I felt it and hadn't really rewatched it. As I was rewatching the ending, I was finding myself going, are they validating the domesticity with how they constructed that ending? Because you have that scene where they're in the bed and then cuts to this very interesting, heady end. And I was, are they saying it's not, the good path is not to the hipster path and going to the domesticity. So I'm actually really loving how you guys are analyzing this.
3: Well, I think one thing that's really fascinating about Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is it's both satirizing this sort of wellness, free love culture. And Oriana and I were just cracked up watching it because it very much is satirizing what people love to stereotype Los Angeles as being. Still now, not even in 69 when the film came out nowadays as well. It has that tongue-in-cheek, really sharp humor about it. And it's in on the joke. But I think it uses that satire to its advantage to make these really interesting arguments about domesticity and fidelity and communication and relationships. I have a couple of friends who are polyamorous, and I'm always like, how does that work? I can't wrap my brain around it. But watching Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice echoed a lot of what I hear them say, which is, you know, you have to have even better communication with your partner in this than you would in a monogamous relationship because you have to be willing to talk about all this stuff and be open and parse these things. And I felt like this film was really starting to dig into some of those things as well.
1: And what I really noticed this go-round with both movies and it's something that we could touch on in general with Natalie Wood, is Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is one of the few films I can immediately think of where Natalie Wood is not the only A-list female, but has a genuine friendship. Look at some of her other movies like Miracle on 34th Street. She's a child whose closest friend is her mother or a grown adult. Or, or even, Santa Claus. <laughs> or Santa Claus, or even something like West Side Story... Anita is there as her friend, but you don't really get a whole lot of, I don't want to say Bechdel test approved, but moments where they're not talking about the action that's going on. Inside Daisy Clover, where the other female character is, there's a jealousy and a rivalry between them. This movie, her and Diane Cannon, A, Diane Cannon was rising at that point, but they match each other, comedy and drama, toe to -to toe. And they have a real genuine friendship where you can believe that they definitely would exist outside the frames of this movie, that there is this history and there's this depth to them that I really appreciated. Then you watch something like Rebel Without a Cause. Natalie is the main girl in the group. There are other girls, but we don't know their names. She doesn't interact with them. Her friendships are predominantly male based. So I really appreciated this movie more so, I think, in the grand scheme of her career. Because she does have another woman to bounce off of. Well,
0: and what's interesting off screen is that Diane Cannon had made very little in the early sixties, met Cary Grant, had their kid and then stopped doing things. But then when she got her divorce, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice was her first film back. So this movie really kicked off her career and she got an Oscar nomination for supporting actress, whereas Natalie was just about to do the opposite get married and have that family and then take a couple of years off. So it's really interesting, the crossroads of their careers. Natalie had been around since 1943 and had taken a break, one break. She took two breaks and one of them, she was on suspension. So it's not like she'd had any time off whatsoever. And then you have Diane Cannon, who's young and just about to kick off her career. And even Elliot Gould at the time, this really put him on the map
1: too. Diane Cannon, I've been fortunate to talk to her and she had nothing but nice things to say about Natalie Wood, said she was very sweet, said she was very shy, but there wasn't a whole lot of camaraderie. She's talked about before in other interviews that Natalie really did tend to keep to herself, didn't really have a lot of intense friendships with her co-stars, which I think is very telling about the type of woman she was.
0: When she was growing up, it's like almost everyone who played one of her mothers, she became lifelong friends with, and she actually really, really did bond with co-stars when she was younger. She really was a precocious child. She didn't necessarily bond with the other children or people her age in the films that she was in, but she really did bond with older people. So that falls in line with that. If she and Diane didn't really become great friends, she was also running around in a different crowd. In general, when she and RJ had been married, they were friends with the older elite Hollywood. And that's something Natalie continued for the rest of her life, too.
3: Yeah, she was definitely one of those people who just always seemed to get along better with even when she was a grown up, quote unquote, grown ups rather than her own peer group. Just like Oriana said, the people she built really long lasting relationships with on sets tended to be people who played her parents, even as a teenager or young woman. She bonded more with Karl Malden than she did with the co-stars her own age, although she really loved James Dean and was very much devastated by his early death. Similarly, was good friends with Tab Hunter for the period of time that they were working together. That absolutely checks out. Most of the cast of West Side Story has said that she was kind of removed and did her own thing. And part of that was that she came onto the project later than the rest of them because of the Splendor shooting schedule. But it seems like she struggled to connect with people her own age and really built longer lasting relationships with the old guard of Hollywood, starting from the time when she was a child. James Dean, he was the first person because of
0: how seriously he took acting and he was her age. He really showed her what acting could be. And at the point where she does rebel, she's really on the precipice of, do I want to make this the rest of my life and career? Or do I want to do something else? Cause I've been doing this for so long that she did a TV episode or or, it was like a TV teleplay. There you go. Thank you Yeah, (laughs) with James Dean. And that was where they first met. And he so inspired her to make this the rest of her career. She was genuinely
3: on the verge of quitting acting. She thought she would just finish out high school and maybe go to college and pursue a normal life working with James Dean on that teleplay radically changed the course of her life and made her want to continue with acting because that was the first time she thought of it as an art rather than a job that she had to go to every single day.
0: Films like West Side Story musicals were not her forte in West Side Story. We all know she thought she was going to be singing. They famously dubbed her by Marnie Nixon. She wasn't told until the final day of filming. So there wasn't really anything she could do about it. Accounts of her on West Side Story, she started after everyone else started and she was the star. She was the only real name that that film had at the time. You hear similar things like that when she did The Great Race, the Blake Edwards film. Comedy, that type of very broad comedy was also not in her wheelhouse. She's still great in it as she is in West Side Story. But I think she took acting very seriously and she was always prepared. She always knew her lines. That's something co star said about her through her entire career, but there were certain films that she was on where she didn't necessarily hang out with everyone. And it seems to be those were ones when it wasn't like a splendor, which she and Warren Beatty didn't even really get along while they were filming it, but drama was really in her wheelhouse and something she was really, really good at. So I think when she stepped outside the box, she might've been a little more introverted because of what she was working on and maybe her own insecurities about how she'd be in the films, which always turn out great. And then Bob and Carol, same thing. She was the only star. They needed that name to really get things going too.
3: She genuinely really felt the pressure of that in those situations. So on West Side Story, especially when she was doing all these things she'd never really done before with choreography and singing. Similarly with Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, she took a huge pay cut to do that. And that's how she ended up with the back end deal. That was the compromise that they reached. But she really believed in the project, so she didn't mind doing it. She was, because of that, very cognizant of the fact that probably a lot of the weight of the film's success rested on her shoulders, at least from a marketing perspective, if not from a performance perspective. And so I'm sure that colored those situations or was something she was carrying in those instances
0: her last two films in 1966 hadn't been the total successes they wanted them to be and they thought they were going to be so she's coming back from a 3 year break and doing something wildly different from anything she'd ever done. Sex and the Single Girl is a very 60s sex comedy and Penelope is like a sexy caper. It's such a weird comedy. Movie. It's like <laughs> a weird one. <laughs> Combination of a lot of stuff so Bob and Carol is a very, very different type of adult she's playing. Everything about that movie is so different from anything she had ever done before. Like Maureen said, if that movie hadn't done well, who knows what would have happened to her career
1: after that. So much was riding on that. She tended to work with people, these two movies especially, these were two directors who were really on the cutting edge in different ways. Nicholas Ray was mm-hmm. such a dark and noirish director that really was able to transition with the different eras. And Paul Mazursky was one of the up and comers of that late 60s, early 70s film generation that we would now come to revere with some of the big names. And this is the film that made Paul Mazursky, Paul Mazursky. So it's not like she
0: did the film right after Bob and Carol, like, okay, this has been tested. We know he was a success. They had no idea.
1: So much of Natalie Wood's life, being a woman in this industry starting out as a child, sexuality is what we all talk about. I mean, we're still talking about Mm -hmm. it with child stars of today. While Natalie Wood dealt with exploitation In a different way, it was not nearly as public and pervasive with social media like it is now. I do appreciate that in both movies, her ability to create chemistry in such unique and subtle ways is really a testament to her as a performer. Because James Dean, I know he's a sex symbol to so many people, but he tends to be a little cold, a little stiff. That's not to diminish his performance at all, which I think is great, but he's not oozing sexuality. She has to draw it out of him. And I think she does such a fantastic job in some of those sequences. He's no Steve McQueen or Warren Beatty. Who <laughs> is oh,
3: really? <laughs> not not the sex on the stick of those two guys. <laughs> uh,
1: the same goes for Bob and Carolyn and Ted now
3: is Robert Cole. Like, I kept
1: confusing him with about 15 other actors when I was watching this movie. I was like, oh wait, it's not wait. Then who the hell is Robert Cole? Because I don't know if he, he is. came
0: He came from a lot of live action Disney films.
2: He was on TV for a number of years with I Spy with Bill Cosby.
1: My mom told me Greatest American Hero, and I was like, okay, that still doesn't
0: help. Very funny Disney movie called Sammy the Wayward Seal, where his sons take a seal from their vacation, like sneak it in the car and bring it home and put it in their garage, which the family doesn't go into the garage, and they create this makeshift shower. So the seal's constantly getting wet until he escapes and jumps into the pool of Robert Cole's boss at a big luau party. It's a wild movie, but that's the type of stuff he
1: was in before. before it's a very this. Disney premise.
3: <laughs> I will say one thing that I find really interesting about Natalie that comes out in both of these films is I think today we've seen the horrific effect of early sexualization of child stars on a lot of women in our generation. And Natalie almost had the opposite where they were doing this infantilizing thing and putting her in pigtails long past when she was actually that age. Part of why she was acting out and fighting so hard to get the role of Judy in Rebel was because she wanted to break that image. She wanted to be seen as a teenager, as a desirable young woman. And that first shot of her in Rebel, trumpet of this is not the Natalie Wood you have seen before with the bright red lipstick and the heavy makeup and the red matching coat. And it's funny because when you haven't seen that film before, you think like James Dean's going to be this hard-edged juvenile delinquent and that Natalie Wood's going to be really slutty for lack of a better word. And they're the exact opposite of what you assume they are going in. They're these just really damaged, wounded soul. So even though she is wearing a lot more makeup and it's significantly more adult and she was able to cut her hair and all of those things at last, she's still dealing with that in a really interesting way. And Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is similar in that she had never been that exposed on screen in both a literal and metaphorical sense. She was worried it would kill her career. A lot of people pushed back against it and didn't want to see her like that. So it's really interesting to me that she is the opposite from what we hear with a lot of child stars, at least on screen, where people wanted to keep this more chaste, youthful image of her. And she was the one who was actively looking to must that up a bit and be taken more seriously and bring some sexual edge and sexual agency into the role she was playing. And you have to wonder if that really had something to do with what was going on off screen,
0: because like Maureen said, while she was being infantilized, that's how her mother made her dress in real life. She went to school and was in frilly dresses with her braided pigtails while other girls were wearing skirts and tight sweaters and makeup. So she felt out of place in her own life because she was being forced to dress exactly how she did in film. Getting into the whole thing with her mother is very, very different. But for a long time, her mother was doing that because She was getting turned down for a lot of parts and she was working. She was trying to make sure she got job to job because she could still look so young. They were making money that way, but it's so hard to imagine like, yeah, that's what you're playing on screen, but then having to actually dress like that in your own life and already feeling like you don't fit in with people because you are in movies. And there's that whole thing about a lot of child stars get bullied in school because everyone thinks they're weird or it's different or they're jealous or who knows the psychology behind that. But the fact that that is what Natalie was dealing with her life until Rebel and the second she does Rebel, which is also why it's so important, she finally gets to take that control of her career and she's the one, okay, now she she pretty much had been the breadwinner, but now she really was. And now her mother couldn't tell her what to do and she could go out and do what she wanted. So it's so interesting watching that film, also knowing what she's going through in her own life, but also bringing up the makeup in the movie. There's so much makeup on her. She's beautiful in the movie, but there's some part of you that it fits in so well with the character because it's like a a 15, 16 year old girl thinking that's Mm -hmm. how adults dress and what they wear. And so there's that sad aspect to it too, where you're not supposed to put on that much lipstick when you're 15, 16, but she's thinking that's how grownups are. Just like when they're looking at the house and pretending
3: like it's their house, it's all pretend. Whereas Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is- a complete departure for her looks wise. That's when she debuts what would pretty much be her vibe until the end of her life. This longer hair, natural look, maybe some eye makeup, eyeliner and mascara, but otherwise very natural freckled face. It's a really interesting contrast where they're both representing similar breaks in her career, but one is very much the teenager playing dress up and the other is, a self-assured woman who knows what she wants and knows what looks good.
2: So I've always found Rebel to be fascinating as the beginning of that stretch. My favorite stretch of her films has always been Rebel through to Love with a Proper Stranger, tapping into exactly what you were talking about, that incoming sense of sexuality that she was really trying to come across. You can see it in Rebel. Marjorie Morningstar for me is another big one with that. She's this young woman, but she wants to be seen as a woman. She wants to be seen as sexual. And there's very much an acknowledgement of the oncoming sexuality that you see in the coming decade. So she's growing into Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice is always how I felt.
3: Absolutely. It's that push and pull between everything pre-Rebel and what she's trying to evolve into and get people to see her as. I will
1: say that I prefer the looks in Bob and and Ted. I mean, her and Diane Cannon look utterly amazing. Everybody's got perfect hair. They've got that great 1960s California glow to them. Everybody's got incredibly frilly, flowery lingerie that they just have on a Tuesday, which is fantastic. Robert Culp could fall on that hair and it wouldn't move, though. <laughs> I know poor, him and poor Elliot Gould really do get the short end of the stick because they made Elliot Gould go in the swimming pool. And I don't know how I feel about him not having a shirt on. Robert Culp's got you have to a be of- really
3: into hair suit men for that look
1: <laughs> to work
3: for you, which, if that's your thing, great. <laughs> you know,
0: I feel like the men in Bob and Carol are. Which is interesting. They're more stereotyped than Carol and Alice are. Yeah. <laughs> like, Carol, I guess, is slightly into 60s mod, but not really. I would really honestly wear everything she wears in that movie. I would wear today. Alice is a little more buttoned up, trying to push against the counterculture a little. I'm not going to do the mini skirt, but I'm going to do this mini dress, but like the necklines, like up to my neck, it's very buttoned up and tight. And then Ellie Gould does not look like he's in the 1960s, he's always in suits. Or a swimsuit. And then Robert Culp is the total hippie with a leather vest. They're very much of that time period.
2: I was just watching that scene where they're undressing. And the girls, it all comes off. And then undressing Robert Culp is this very intricate, unzipping from the back.
3: He wore his own clothes in the film. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, he wore his own wardrobe. Natalie did all her own makeup. It was truly indie budget production.
1: Will always feel like a come down for Natalie Wood to go from having Corey Allen in Rebel Without a Cause to ending up with Robert Cole. This is my annual show that I only watch Rebel without a cause because Corey Allen's hot and it's not fair that his character dies. Just had to throw that out there.
0: <laughs> but that's the the great thing about Rebel. Even the weird jerk Jock, he's not the typical who I guess you'd think they'd be mean but he's super insecure too. And really just doing things for show. The movie is such a great study of masculinity and toxic masculinity. I've seen the movie probably 10 times. And this was the first time, maybe the second time I'd voluntarily sat down to watch it. It just wasn't on TV. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm not doing anything else tonight. I guess I'm watching rebel again. And I'd never loved it. I always appreciated it for what it was, but then constantly would find myself rewatching it. But sitting and really watching it from Judy's point of view was really, really interesting. And her character has a great arc. She's real mean. In the beginning of the movie, she's taunting him. She's such a jerk. She's a mean and girl. Then- 100%. She's a mean girl. It's like you just like with all the characters, no one is what they seem. And you just have to peel away those layers and really be vulnerable. And open up to talking about your feelings, which really segues into Bob and Carol. That's all she and her husband do, or talk about their feelings.
1: I want to touch on the Oscar nominations for both these movies, because we love to rip apart an Oscar ceremony for being wrong. Rebel Without a Cause was nominated for three Oscars, two for acting, supporting actor for Salminio, Natalie Wood and supporting actress, which... I don't know if that's category fraud that might be flirting with it because I think she might be weed, but I don't make these decisions as well as the script in terms of who won in case we want to look at that. Best Actress alongside Natalie Wood. It was Peggy Lee for Pete Kelly's Blues, Marisa Pavan for The Rose Tattoo, Betsy Blair for Marty. Kim, do you want to take a guess at who won? Uh, Was it Rose Tattoo? No. Stenna Magnani won for lead in Rose Tattoo. Mm -hmm. It was Joe Van Fleet in the other
3: James D movie released that year, East of Eden. That's right. I don't know if I agree with that win. I mean, I love that Natalie got nominated because it really shows to us now and audiences then, but also to her that she got what she wanted, that it worked, that she was going to be taken seriously and not be boxed in as this child star, because the first serious project as a teenager, she gets this nomination. And so I'm super happy for her in retrospect that it worked out for her. It's like for her in this situation, the nomination
0: was the win. And sometimes that happens. That even happens today. Someone gets nominated, you know, they're not going to win, whether they campaigned or not for it. It is one of those, like the nomination was the win in
3: and of itself. And read that category fraud. I could definitely see an argument for that, but I think the studio particularly because of Dean's death, was so intent on framing him as the star and then Minio and Wood as supporting to him that that's how they ended up with that, that that all of their energy went into. He's the star. He's the star. His last great project. And then letting them be the anchors on the side.
0: Well, and if you probably break down screen time, I bet Dean is in more of it than
3: the other two.
1: In terms of Bob and Carol and Ted now is, that film was nominated for four Academy Awards, sporting actor and actress for Elliot Gould and Diane Cannon, the script and the cinematography. It did not win any of them, unfortunately. And Natalie was not nominated, which I think is shocking because she certainly deserved the nomination. I mean, Diane Cannon is great, but she, she had demented and she would go on to play this character in other, in other roles, tended to play the neurotic, overbearing type of wife, and she's good in it but I'm surprised that Natalie wasn't nominated considering then again, if you look at the actress in a leading role that year, it's a pretty packed race. So Natalie also is the straight man in Bob and Carol. Everyone yeah. else
0: visibly does things more bombastic and louder. That's the type of acting she did. She's really grounded and Plays the most normal of those people. Out of anyone in the 60s, I would expect to see like that character, I believe would be a real person walking around. I would not want to be friends with someone like Alice. She's so much, but that also is way more fun.
3: That's why Natalie never won because her work was always really subtle and really grounded. And she was often playing these straight women characters, giving a piece its groundedness. And that gets overlooked by Oscar voters. Because if you do look at her nominations, you have Rebel, which is maybe not a histrionic performance, but it's certainly a huge departure for her. And I think that the nomination is recognition of that. And then her other two are Splendor in the Grass and Love with a Proper Stranger, both of which have these massive breakdown, very showy scenes within them. And they're great. They're beautifully acted. They're astonishing pieces of work. But it's like, yeah, okay. So the two times she really pushes the envelope and has a huge breakdown scene, she gets nominated and the rest of all this other beautiful, grounded work gets ignored. Like if she wasn't
0: going to win for Splendor, once she didn't win for that, I'm like, she's not going to win for something else. That is a perfect performance. And it crescendos exactly to that scene and then goes back down. It's never boring, very subtle. The way she can navigate the mental breakdown scene versus everything else in the film and have it not feel showy and have it really feel deserved. It is the same with Love with a Proper Stranger. Same thing, but once she didn't win for Splendor, they weren't going to give it to her.
1: In case you're curious, who was nominated for Best Actress in a very contentious 1970s award ceremony? It was Liza Minnelli for The Sterile Cuckoo, Gene Simmons for The Happy Ending, Jane Fonda for They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Jean-Vierre Bujold for Anne of the Thousand Days, and Maggie Smith won for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. We were going to add Natalie to that list for Bob and Carol. Who would we cut? I don't personally believe in cutting people out because I feel like it says something Valid. at the time, but
0: I'm really <laughs> upset Jane Fonda didn't win for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? That Performance hurts. and just film in general. You see movies about the depression that show it in, I don't know, kind of like a, not like nostalgic or romanticized way, but I feel like They Shoot Horses, Don't They? is really what the depression would have been like. Yeah. It was awful. The
1: 1969, 1970s Oscars is, very of its era, as Oriana noted. This is a year that saw John Wayne win for True Grit and a nomination pool that included John Voight and Dustin Hoffman for Midnight Cowboy. And Hello, Dolly was alongside Bob and Carolyn Ted and Alice and Butch Cassidy. So you can see the landscape just completely changing and mashing into this ball of Choices. <laughs> well, and that's what's so crazy about the 60s. This is going to seem really far fetched, but I
0: promise it's not. It's like you take something like the parent trap, it feels like a very, not outrightly and not stylistically, but thematically, it seems like a leading up to the counterculture movie. You have these parents who are already divorced and separated their children. It's all crazy. But the fact that they were divorced during this time, so they would have been divorced in the 50s when people mm-hmm. did not do that and they have perfectly healthy children they're all really normal people. You could totally watch that from the counterculture point of view and be like, see, divorce isn't that terrible. But then in the end, they get married again. They reinforce that domestic bliss, even though it's completely well-deserved. So many movies in the 60s really toe that line of totally feels like we're doing something new and groundbreaking, but then we're really going to reestablish certain types of stereotypes and ways of life. In the 1967 nominations, you have all these really, really new groundbreaking movies, then you have Dr. Doolittle. There's literally no other way to explain that than what's going on. The studio system really still trying to push one thing
1: and all these
0: independent people doing something completely new and different. It's the small fights.
1: I want to start wrapping things up. Oriana, Maureen, are there movies that you recommend if people like these two, they want to learn more about Natalie? I mean, obviously there's a million choices that they could go to. But what's one movie that either
3: is an underseen gem or just one that they should definitely experience? Well, you mentioned Driftwood at the beginning. That's definitely one that was a discovery for both of us. That was really charming. That's one of her childhood roles. It comes right after Miracle on 34th Street. Dean Jagger is the parental figure in that. It's really timely. It's about vaccinations And a small town having fear of vaccinations and this war for science or anti-science. It's even more timely now than it was a year ago when we watched it. It was (laughs) wild.
0: We did not know what this movie was about. And once you realize it's going towards a pandemic and you watch it during or after the pandemic, there is no world where this movie will never not be timely now.
3: It's one of those great films where you're like, oh, okay, same old stuff. This just doesn't change. And Natalie, it's truly her first starring role. She's the title character because Driftwood's the nickname they gave her in the town because she sort of drifted into town and has no roots because Miracle, technically Maureen O'Hara and Edmund Gwynn and John Payne were the stars. So this is her first true starring role and she's just really charming in it and it's a great little gem. So I definitely recommend that.
0: And she's a great character. She's this little girl literally she thinks she's walked into Sodom and Gomorrah and she's judging all the people in this town by spouting out really obscure passages from the Bible, but in like really (laughs) snarky ways. And people don't really get, she's insulting them. And she really questions a lot of normal things that you do. Someone asks her how she's doing and she answers and then they ignore it. And so the next time someone asks her how she's doing, her response is why you don't care. (laughs) You're just asking that to be nice. Why do people do this? It's a really pleasant performance. Do you have another title that you wanted to call out Oriana? I know another young one of hers that we really liked was father was a fullback. Mm, Yeah, that one's great. Fred McMurray and Maureen O'Hara. She's a really cute little tomboy girl. That's another one where she's
3: really funny and snarky. Maybe another one you both mentioned briefly Marjorie Morningstar, which she stars in with Gene Kelly. It's a little bit uneven, but that's another role that she really fought for and really believed she was the right fit for and had to prove that she was after she'd had a string of lackluster films with Tab Hunter. She's really beautiful in it. And she has wonderful chemistry with Gene Kelly, despite a pretty large age difference. That was a great discovery for us going through this process.
0: Not a whole lot of people know about this one, but Love with a Proper Stranger is absolutely incredible. I saw that for the first time on TCM, I don't know, five, six years ago, and was just completely obsessed with it. I feel like that's one, along with Lunder in the Grass, if you like Natalie, but you've only seen West Side Story or Bob and Carol or
1: Rebel, those are two really, really
0: good ones to just round it out.
1: Both of these movies are definitely worth a watch, as is most of Natalie's filmography. I love that you two were tackling this project and that we got to talk about two fantastic films one of which is now available on hbo max so if you already have an account you can stream rebel without a cause on it right now you gotta love easy access kim any final thoughts on both of these movies you want to throw out i would recommend anybody dive into natalie
2: Wood's filmography she's one of my favorites and i truly think she's one of the most important actresses really especially in that late studio system era Looking into both these movies, Rebel is one that took some time to grow on me. I watched it when I was very young and didn't get it. like Bob Carroll and Alice, but it's one of my favorites. I would recommend people both watch because it's important work and it needs to be seen. And also we have to throw out A Cry in the Night. If you're looking for a fun Natalie movie, we'll watch (laughs) that one. Because Raymond Burr, I always have to show for Raymond Burr.
3: doing an early norman bates there
2: yes, <laughs> totally yes. Worth it for
0: this scene with the mother very chilling that movie is
3: also a little uneven but wild and really entertaining final thought on these films which is the Gaspacho was astonishing
1: <laughs> i'm so glad you went there <laughs>
3: maureen oriana
1: it was so great to get to chat with you about natalie wood Please tell everybody where they can find your podcast, where they can find you on social media, anything you want to
3: share that's coming up. Our podcast will have completed its first season and every film of Natalie's will be out there and available for the listening in terms of our episodes. So go check out your favorite film. Check out one of these titles that you haven't seen yet. Watch and and then listen to our episode. We'll also be pretty near announcing the subject of our second season at that point. So keep an eye on our social media. We have an Instagram and a Twitter account, both at Hollywoodography. The Twitter is a little elided; It's missing both of the O's in order to fit. Oriana posts the most beautiful photos on Instagram. So if you just want to look at amazing pictures of Natalie Wood, (laughs) check that out. That's going to close out
1: this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Audible and Apple iTunes. Help us out. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and that helps us. The podcast is also on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. We also have an Instagram there as well. We also have our contest. We're inching ever closer to a or 1000 followers on Twitter. If we hit a 1000 followers on either Twitter or Instagram, we will give away a massive prize pack. Help us get there so that we can give it away to you. Kim, where are you on the internet? And what is going on with our website in July? I am on the internet,
2: uh, Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd at kpair624. On the website in July, I know we'll have a few videos hitting. I'm going to be wrapping up this month my What's on TV series, looking at 1965 and the TV lineup. Definitely some more reviews and interviews coming your way shortly, journeysinclassicfilm.com.
1: And if you want to help us out and support female-created podcasts and support classic cinema, then help us out by heading over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We give away pins dvds and blu-rays we have all sorts of bonus content including exclusive interviews and bonus shows head over to patreon.com slash we will be back with a new episode till then